Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber. I'm sitting here with James Harkin, Andy Murray, and today's special guest, it's author of a new book called Male Obsession. It's Mark Mason. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with you, Andy Murray. My fact is that for the Queen's coronation, people dressed up as television sets. (laughs) (laughs) We should pass the giggle test, Andy. So this is, uh, I read this in an article by the historian Kate Williams in The Observer, and um, it seems to come from a a book of um, policemen's memoirs. One of the first female beat police officers Mm. um, wrote a book of memoirs about her experiences, and she describes it, and I think a couple of other sources say it as well. So this is because it was such a huge thing for it to be televised. Televisions were bought in huge numbers across the country for the coronation. Yeah. I think 20 million people watched, and on average, there were 17 people watching each TV set. And you think of TVs in the, at the time, they were tiny, you know, screens yeah. a few inches from corner to corner. Um, so, so you would just go to the person in your street who had a TV. And yeah, exactly. Do you yeah, know yeah. what went up in sales as well? No. So TVs went up massively yeah. in sales, and so did massive magnifying glasses. So that oh, they really? could magnify it so that more people could come and see. Really? I got that from Kate Williams's Twitter stream. They That's were specially fantastic. made, weren't they? They made special rectangular ones that were made to fit onto the front of the casing for your television, which, of course, in those days was a big piece of furniture. Yeah, they made them specially. Too. That is fantastic. The thing about TVs going up in numbers is definitely true, um, but um, in 1950, there were 400,000 TV licenses. In 51, there were 700,000. And in 53, there were 1,100,000. So they did did go up when the coronation was on but actually they had been going up for quite a long time so it wasn't just the coronation that caused a big increase in tv sales yeah. right i think it's true that the one part of the ceremony that wasn't shown because it would be seen as too you know there was a big debate about whether you should be televising something like this full stop did mm. it demean the occasion but they didn't show the actual coronation moment where the crowns put on her head i th- i think it was i think that was actually tradition though because I, I read about this where they hold a the canopy above her head and it's a secret part. No one knows what happens in that part. I think I have a good idea, which is that the crown goes onto the head. No, no, because there's, there's more. Because there's the spoon, and the spoon... You have to explain. <laughs> the Archbishop of Canterbury spoons the Queen. <laughs> or King. <laughs> so is it only the Archbishop and the Queen under the canopy at that point? Well, yeah. They make a den. Um, <laughs> all we know is what we can make out from the silhouettes of the yeah. flashlights going on on the inside. <laughs> but there's definitely a spoon. <laughs> That's what we see. So the ceremonial spoon comes out. Okay. And oil is poured. Anoint- uh, anointing oil. Anointing Special oil. Stuff, I think. Yeah. And uh, so, and apparently, it's the only surviving thing from the Middle Ages. This is this is part of the oh, the tradition. Yeah. It's the only thing that's made its way through. He anoints her forehead, her breast, and her hands. Mm-hmm. But are you saying that during the coronation, <laughs> the Archbishop of Canterbury oiled up the Queen's breast? <laughs> according to according to what I read, yeah. What wow. is definitely true about the Archbishop of Canterbury on that occasion, 1953, was that he had to give the Queen a push to get her started. <laughs> <laughs> when she practised, yeah. she, pin- she pinned heavy 
curtains to her shoulders to simulate the coronation robe. When it came to the real thing, the coronation robes were even heavier than she expected, and she couldn't get me, because she's quite a small woman, she was 20, whatever she was then. She said, she whispered to the Archbishop of Canterbury, give me a shot, I think the exact (laughs) phrase was to get me started, that's it. Give me a shot to get me started. Wow, Um, that's very cool. More on the Archbishop at the time, who was a very interesting guy, George Fisher. Um, So he was dead against it being televised um, oh, really? for, a, for a number of reasons. He thought it might demean the occasion and um, he really wanted people to uh, join in for the hymn if they were watching at home and stand up for the homage part of the ceremony. Um, and there was so much debate about this all across the country. One MPR said in the House of Commons, might there even be something unseemly in the chance that a viewer could watch this solemn and significant service with a cup of tea at his elbow? <laughs> <laughs> I love the fact that they installed extra toilets in the Abbey because there were so many guests and also TV crews and everyone working on it. They installed extra toilets at the Abbey and then did a sound check to check that if by chance they were all flushed at the same time, the BBC's microphones wouldn't pick them up. Wow. wow. That's, that's preparation. That yeah. Preparation. Wow. And the choir boys were given packed lunches containing peanut butter and marmalade sandwiches to have the opposite effect from, uh, you know, making them go to They wanted to bung them up so they wouldn't need to go yeah. to the toilet. <laughs> and they were also given really big drinks canisters so that once they'd had their drink, if they needed to you to refill that drinks canister... It would save them having no. to That's so good. Did um, they um, find out what the sound of 200 choir boys peeing into a canister <laughs> sounded like? Could the BBC mics pick that up? Yeah. I think this is quite well known, but I didn't know it. Uh, Keith Richards was one of the choir boys at the coronation. Uh, well, I'm afraid it turns out that it, Keith was certainly a great choir boy, certainly sang for the Queen, but they think a couple of years later it wasn't actually at the coronation, oh, okay. which is so disappointing. Has no one asked him? <laughs> we they can, have, we but can no do. one can understand the answer. <laughs> um, I think he would have been six he would, Well, he was time. born... He would have been a, a bit young. This is where it. my inner nerd comes out. He was born December the 18th, 1943. So, yeah, he would have been nine. So he would have yeah. been the right age then. Oh, yeah, he was certainly yeah. in the ballpark, but not in the Abbey. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that was so nerdy, Mark, coming onto our podcast. And <laughs> well, that, if anyone has not read Keith Richards' autobiography, it is, as far in my money, it's the best book. Of, no, mine's just out. It's the second best book. Yeah. No, yours is out as well. It's the third best book of the 21st century. We got two out this year. And it's the fourth best. We keep going. Um, there's one cool bit of the coronation which um, didn't happen for... Victoria. In fact, Victoria was the first person it didn't happen for. Okay. So have you heard about the Queen's Champion? No. no. Okay. So in medieval um, coronations, and Victoria's was the first coronation this didn't happen for, so everyone before then it happened. Um, it, the Queen's Champion, or the King's Champion, is a noble. And for the post-coronation banquet, this person would come in in full armour and throw down his gauntlet and then challenge anyone to a fight if they <laughs> said the sovereign was not fit to rule or didn't have the right to rule. Wow. I Does think we happen? should bring that back. It's so good. I reckon Brian blessed his bomb for that. <laughs> yes, exactly. There is still a Queen's Champion. So it's a hereditary position, even though they don't oh, do it at yeah. coronations anymore. Um, he's called Francis, and he's a chartered accountant. <laughs> <laughs> um, his full name is Fra- uh, Francis John Fane Marmion Dimmock. And as far as I can tell, as it's a hereditary title, he is the current Queen's champion. How does he look? Like, um, He just looks like a nice man. <laughs> you can't actually tell how he looks because he's wearing a full suit of armour at all times. Walking <laughs> <laughs> into the chartered he... accountant's office. <laughs> <laughs> clunk, clunk. Who challenges the Queen's right to rule? Because <laughs> the one thing that did happen at the Queen's coronation dinner that hadn't happened before was that uh, her mother 
as she became the Queen Mother, wouldn't let her have too much to drink. She said, remember, you have to rain all afternoon. She didn't want her, do- her daughter getting drunk at oh. the lunch. And also, of course, Coronation Chicken was invented for the occasion. That's where it gets its name. Yeah. It was specially created. Right. Although... It's very similar to Jubilee Chicken, which was invented a few years earlier for the Silver Jubilee of George V. Oh, is it? Um, which is basically chicken with mayonnaise and spices. Yeah. <laughs> and pretty much exactly the same thing. But then they, let's say, reinvented it for the um, coronation. So I always call it Jubilee Chicken when I go. <laughs> Can I have a Jubilee Chicken Panino, please? <laughs> <laughs> um, do you know that on that day when they dressed in as TV sets... That's mm. not the only thing that they dressed as. No. They dressed as Mount Everest as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it had been conquered the day before. Exactly. And the news had come through. So they were celebrating a number of things. And Mount Everest was a massive celebration. So yeah. people were dressed as TV sets and Mount Everest. That's amazing. Yeah. It, what a big news day. Yeah. Everest and a coronation on the same day. That's massive. Yeah. Do you know there's a conspiracy that we didn't... <laughs> <laughs> that Hillary didn't get to the top of Mount Everest? Really? Yeah, what? and it's it's actually really interesting, the reason why. So okay. the way that the news got broken to the British public was via a journalist called James Morris, who has changed sex and is now Jan Morris, okay. one of the most famous travel writers alive. <laughs> now, Jan Morris got the scoop, was there when Hillary came down, when he said the words, we knocked the bastard off, George, uh, and got the scoop. Now, here's the thing. She didn't know how to get, or he at the time, didn't know how to get the message back without it being infiltrated and then spread around the world because he wanted the scoop. So what he ended up sending was a coded message that he'd prearranged to be sent back. And this was the message that actually went back. The message went, snow conditions bad, stop. Advanced base abandoned yesterday, stop. Awaiting improvement. So the message was to say that they haven't made it. Wow. And okay. people actually think that he was telling the so truth there. So what message did he send if they didn't make it then? <laughs> good news everyone <laughs> that's a good point yeah okay time for fact number two and that is james okay my fact this week is that the world puddle jumping championships bans fizzy drinks in case they improve participants performance <laughs> talk yeah. us through the science behind it <laughs> well it's weird because on qi we have said that fizzy drinks don't make children more hyperactive and in the world puddle jumping championships it's usually children in fact it's always children taking part but they think that if you give them fizzy drinks then they will become more excitable more hyperactive and it could enable them to jump higher and make bigger splashes <laughs> than other competitors and they don't want to encourage people to drink fizzy drinks because it's not good for you and so they've decided to ban it i think that's very sweet apart from the ban element of it (laughs) it could be a placebo thing couldn't it if you've heard your parents and read in the news that it makes you jump better then that could have well what we've said on qi and i can't remember quite the science behind it is that the children um actually act exactly the same but it's the adults who then kind of fuss around them and think oh they're hyperactive they're hyperactive and when you get someone who's watching the events happening who doesn't know whether or not they've had fizzy drinks they can't tell the difference with the children how do they monitor it though like, how do you test for fizzy drink? <laughs> is, it, is it a pee sample? What? I think they just ban them from the general area of the competition. So maybe you could, like, stock up on Red Bull the night before. The night before. Yeah, that's true. Well, I was reading the Metro the Metro um, newspaper yeah. 
covered this, and they the the line they used was, "This is not the first time sporting contests have been marred by doping associations." <laughs> Lance Armstrong was stripped of seven. <laughs> short so what they do is it's based on height of jump, enthusiasm, distance of splash, and stickability, uh, which is the amount of mud which clings to each competitor. All those different things. My favourite element of that is enthusiasm is being marked. <laughs> That's basically code for, as with any event where you're giving prizes to kids, the one that looks most likely to burst into tears if it doesn't win gets the win because uh, but you just don't want a scene. It'd be good in the Olympics if the most enthusiastic competitor got something. In, in the um, Tour de France, they'll give it whoever is the the most aggressive on the day they'll give a prize to even if they don't win really, really? yeah what someone who's like kicked other bicyclists <laughs> off the track no aggression in this case means that you're making attacks earlier and trying to uh, trying okay. to move the race onwards yeah right okay the whole notion of jumping forget all this th- thing about cricket being in the olympics i want the campaign to put the standing long jump back into the olympics because it used to be in until 1912 i think uh, and the record is still going, even though not in the Olympics. The record for the standing long jump was broken earlier this year, 23rd of February 2015. The Dallas Cowboys cornerback did a standing long jump of 12 feet, 2 and 3 quarter inches, which is the length wow. of a snooker table from a standing. <laughs> but then the other bizarre thing about the standing long jump is that it is, it is a condition of entry to serve in the Brazilian police. <laughs> to serve in the Brazilian police, you have to do a stand. If you're a man, you need to be able to do a standing long jump of 2.14 meters. If you're a woman, one. Wow. There's no way I could do that. That's great. That's incredible. I couldn't. What do you reckon you could do standing long jump? Shall we do it and then then say what our scores are? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. We're going to do a quick cut here. So we're still recording and we found out that Andy is the best at the standing long jump by about five centimeters. Yeah. I mean,. And we all reckon we were getting around two metres, so we don't think we can get into the Brazilian. <laughs> but only by a few centimetres, so if we work on it, we might be able to do it. Oh, did yeah. we okay. make it into the Brazilian ladies' we, army? Yes, we did. 1.66. Get in! Yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, okay, I want to do some things about drugs uh, and uh, performance-enhancing drugs. So, um, Petter Corder, who's a tennis player, uh, he tested positive for the steroid Nandrolone in Wimbledon in 1998, but he blamed it on having eaten too much steroid-fed veal, okay? (laughs) Uh, But it turned out that if he had eaten enough veal to be tested positive, (laughs) he would have had to have eaten 40 calves a day for 20 years (laughs) to have such a high level. And there was an Olympic gold medalist called Dennis Mitchell uh, who tested positive for high testosterone. And he claimed that it was because he consumed five beers the night before and had sex with his wife four times. That's so, ridiculous. No one can have five beers. <laughs> <laughs> if, if I was the real guy and I was being investigated, I like to think that I would have tried to prove that. And when, when the investigators were coming around, I would have ordered a load of calves and been constantly eating a calf just all over my house and my garden full of calves. Yeah. <laughs> This park where they had this puddle jumping oh, yeah. thing, it's called Wicksteed Park. That's right. And Wicksteeds make playgrounds. Yep. Yeah. And did you hear about the guy, Charles Wicksteed? Yeah, this is incredible. This is the best thing about the fact, I think. He invented the slide and the swing. Two things. Two things. Two things. That was a good morning, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he invented the slide. Give us more details here, Andy. This is well, he, people say that he invented the modern slide. Now, I have found a source which disputes this and uh. points out there are a couple of earlier 
things in New York which look a lot like slides. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's possible that he didn't invent the very first slide. He definitely came up with a version of it mm. for his park. Um, and he also invented the modern swing, which you get in playgrounds. And his first version, have you seen it? No. The, the, the top um, bar is almost four meters off the ground. It looks incredibly dangerous. Yeah, you can, the, you can, there's photos that have been unearthed. I don't know if you've ever seen oh, yeah. the sort of extreme swinging. It's kind of like that. Oh, I think I've seen extreme swinging. <laughs> Just Google that, anyone at home. You don't grow up in the suburbs and not... Uh... <laughs> but what he kind of also pioneered was the idea of the playground. And this park, where the puddle jumping competition was held, is the park where the first ever playground Great. was built. And he used pipes from... World War One, Eddie turned them into swings, so they became the first swings. And you can see the first slides as well. They're really interesting. The first slides were polished planks of wood with no sides. You just <laughs> went down a plank of wood, risking a broken leg and splinters. Yes, so, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and kids, yeah. you can see them going down it, and it's just very and dangerous. They were also gender segregated. Were they? One for boys and one for girls. Yeah. He said later on that was an old-fashioned. He realized he realized that was an old-fashioned notion, yeah. and he he abandoned that. Um, uh, segregation. Um, and so they know where the oldest modern day swing then in the world is. And it's not in the park, it's in the backyard of Charles um, Wicksteed's home, which they discovered oh. not too long ago. And it was his prototype. And so now that we know officially the oldest swing in the world. Right. It's so cool. And it's still yeah. working. Still working. <laughs> but, no, it is. It's not like an iPhone that goes out of <laughs> <laughs> Okay, time for fact number three, and that is Mark. My fact is that the shuttlecocks used in professional badminton are made using real goose feathers, which are always taken from the bird's left wing. Wow. wow. So I, I kind of knew that it was taken from an animal. I thought it was duck. <laughs> I, think, um, I think ducks can be used in your defense. I right. That, I don't think that's the stupidest mistake anyone's ever yeah. made. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I didn't know the left wing. Yeah, well, apparently, they, if, they use, if you get them from the left wing... It makes the shuttlecock spin clockwise. If you take them from the right wing, it makes the shuttlecock spin anti-clockwise. And they're obviously used to playing with a clockwise spin, and that's why they keep using those oh. wings. So if you have one which was half with feathers from the left wing and half from the right wing, would it not spin? It would go completely, yeah. It would be a completely haphazard really? shuttlecock, oh. yeah. So if you took the feathers from a bird's right wing and put them on its left wing, so it had two left wings... You'd be arrested. Um. <laughs> but you're right, they do take them from a live animal, because animals will regrow them. So I don't know if they keep harvesting the same bird to get more shuttlecocks out of it. But it does oh. apparently cause the bird, in, the goose, incredible pain when they're taken Ooh. out. But they do then re regrow. Ah. You know when someone does, I don't know, your eyebrows? Yeah. That in itself is a bit like, oh, that's quite painful. Imagine, like at the bottom of feathers, it's almost sticks. Well, I think it's more, it's more akin to pulling out toenails rather than any oh, hairs, isn't it? Down yeah, yeah. Probably yeah. What uh, I read this incredible fact, which is if a bald eagle loses a feather on one of its wings, it will shed the corresponding feather on the opposite wing to maintain balance. Now that. Wow. Is. Isn't that amazing? That's yeah. the sort of thing that fundamentalist Christians will pick up on to show that there is a God. That's <laughs> just astonishing, isn't, isn't it? it? Wow. How quickly would it do it? I reckon just straight away. So if you were, if you happened to be plucking a bald eagle and you took one out, you'd just see another one go boop on the other side. <laughs> that would be useful if you're like a turkey plucker or something. Yeah. And you'd only have to do half the half turkey. Half yeah. Do they pluck it out, their own feather, or do they, can they selectively shed a single feather? I believe that's what I read. Now, I, I actually don't believe it myself, but that's what I read okay. in a reputable source. 
Heat magazine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Pluckers Monthly. <laughs> that was a very big mistake at the news agents that I ended up with that. <laughs> I wonder how many feathers a goose can give, because mm. the professional shuttlecocks always use 16 feathers. I read that they only use four feathers per goose, per shuttlecock. <laughs> really? I think, that, I think that's what I read. This is where Dan's cheekily boyish grin is causing it. Is he winding us up here? <laughs> no, that's what I read. It's um, no more than four feathers from the same goose for the same oh, shuttlecock. Really? I've heard that once the shuttlecock is made, if you want to alter the spin that it's giving you, if it's spinning too much, you can either take the feathers out or bend them over or, or snip the end oh. off the feathers. Oh. Is that a way to cheat in badminton if you kind of snip the feathers a bit yeah. it'll make it spin more or less like you, yeah, it is. i watched a video online where a scientist was talking about how you can cheat in badminton and that's one of the things that you're not allowed to do if you bend the feathers in wow. you get way more speed something to do with wind resistance yeah. it just yeah oh, the speed because the speed is the other incredible thing about a professional shuttlecock you know you think fast bowler in cricket two or three of them have reached 100 miles an yeah. hour with accredited Show speedo hard, did yeah it? and brett lee's done it and darren goff brilliantly when they first started using speed guns came into the dressing room and said, I just bowled at 150 miles an hour. And they said, no, no it's kilometres an hour, Darren, you got it wrong. Um, but so that's that. Then the tennis players, I think, are up to about 150, aren't they? Mm. A, a really heavy server in male tennis will do 150. Shuttlecocks, 200 miles an hour. Wow. When it comes off the racket, 200. How can, wow. you, how can a human possibly do that to an yeah. object? It's unbelievable. It slows down pretty quickly, though. It does, it? but yeah. That's <laughs> almost literally what it's designed to do. Mm. Like most other sports yeah, will design yeah. something to go faster. This is designed to slow down. Yeah. So I don't know if Americans use the word shuttlecock that much. Maybe they do because I'm not American, but um, I've read that they call them birds instead. Yeah. And the reason they did that is because they didn't want to say the word cock. <laughs> that was a, that oh. was a thing that um, the birds, cocks, were were called. What are they called now? Roosters. Roosters. Yeah. The, the, the supposed etymology is from shyness, basically. Oh, yeah. that's lovely. Yeah. It's a bit like, um, and it's very appropriate that we're sitting here in the postcode WC. And I know this because the new book's themed around postcodes. <laughs> Evelyn Moore used to have a friend who refused to call the W. WC postcode in London, WC. She always used to insist on saying West Central because oh. she said WC had indelicate association. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you guys know about the Miller Place Panthers high school badminton team? These guys have got the longest winning streak in team sport history. Uh, and from spring of 1973 until April the 12th, 2005, they won every single game. A winning streak of 504 consecutive wow. victories. Wow. Yeah. Which, well, the obvious question is who beat them it was another team nearby I haven't written down who it was <laughs> but it was another team nearby they beat them 10-5 I remember wow. uh, and that was the end of their streak uh, but they've done quite well since then they've gone back to winning ways I understand unfortunately we've heard of neither of them <laughs> which means the fame level crossover hasn't yet <laughs> worked out for either of them if you go onto the wikipedia page for miller place which is a, a conurbation in america somewhere um they are on that page so i think they're locally quite famous locally probably yeah. so but this also means that it's a badminton team therefore yeah. they have a new player replace because that's even more impressive that it's not yeah. one yeah. singular person or two yeah. people it's are they a school team? Yeah, school if team. It was, if it was one person who'd been winning for 32 years, <laughs> I think the school administration should get involved. Because that, that student is being failed by the education system. <laughs> These 10-year-olds are useless. <laughs> <laughs> That's why he kept winning. <laughs> Okay, time for our final fact of the show, and that is my fact. And my fact this week is that the ancient Egyptians had a porn papyrus. <laughs> uh, yeah, so this this is a bit of a mystery, this papyrus. It was found uh, in a cave. 
Um, it definitely has scenes of sexual nature, and no one is quite sure whether or not it was used as actual personal use stimulation, or whether or not it was a joke and it was poking fun of the of the rich and and the powerful at the time. They're Could not it quite be like sure. Like a sex manual, like um, the Kama Sutra. The Kama Sutra. Sutra. Yeah, exactly. So it's called the Turin Erotic Papyrus, and they <laughs> have no idea what it's for but they're still trying to find out i want more details on what's in it what's depicted oh so there's a lot of just sexual scenes there's a lot of men and women uh doing stuff the first third of it is not sexual at all it's just animals and birds doing various things like all porn there's always you know (laughs) that's the equivalent of the washing machine you need the guy to arrive yes yeah yeah. you need him to you need to establish (laughs) the scene (laughs) looks like that chariot's broken (laughs) (laughs) okay so papyrus uh is a plant uh, uh-huh. that they made early paper out of, and that's why we get the word paper. Um, they used papyrus for other things as well. They used it for mattresses. They used it for chairs, tables, baskets, sandals, ropes, boats. Uh, apparently, they used it for tampons. Wouldn't be particularly, you know, it's very rough, so it wouldn't be particularly nice, but they softened it by soaking it in the Nile first. Wow. Uh, but it was like a, this kind of material that they used Sort of a wonder it. material, like yeah. the plastic of the day. Exactly, yeah. like that, yeah. Dead Sea Scrolls are written on papyrus. Uh, one fragment of the Dead Sea Scrolls is called 7Q5, and some people think it's an early part of the New Testament. Um, but they've managed to work this out, despite the fact that only one word is fully legible <laughs> wow. on this fragment, and that word is and. <laughs> well, that just clinches it, doesn't it? Yeah. It's and with a capital A, and apparently the Gospel of Mark quite often starts sentences with and. God, that's good um, sleuthing, though. Yeah, or made up stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, ancient Egypt, uh, they actually prepared for sex in the afterlife. Did they? Yeah, I didn't know this. They, they actually, <laughs> properly, it was like a thing that they had to consider. And so um, men had false penises attached to their mummies. And women had artificial <laughs> nipples. Can we, just, can we just say what the mummy is in this case? Sorry, yes, to themselves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And women had artificial nipples. Did they? Yeah. Sort um, of like ghost nipples. And they, yeah, and they would become fully functional in the afterlife. That was the idea that they would sort of be... It's optimistic, isn't it? Thinking that an artificial penis will be useful once you're dead. Yeah. Because, <laughs> I mean, it's not useful at that time. It's just kind of going off trust a little bit. <laughs> If these days, if you ask for an artificial penis to be put in the coffin with you, especially if it think... was an open casket, <laughs> I'm starting to feel very sheltered now in my knowledge of ancient because I went there earlier this year. I was pleased to went to, down to um, Tutankhamun's tomb, and was, they oh, discovered hun- honey down there. When they honey is the one food that never goes off, and they discovered some honey that had been buried with Tutankhamun, however many thousands of years ago. So that cool. Have they and eaten it? it? That's what my guide couldn't confirm. They, that some of it was kept for the, the rulers of Egypt at the time, you know, the, who was in charge earlier this century. Uh, sorry, early 20th century. And, yeah, they did take some, and I think they must have sampled it to check that it was okay. I bet it was disgusting. <laughs> it must have been, right? Yeah. Well, let's say you've got a jar of honey. Yeah. Yeah. And you left it in a sealed dry room for 2,000 years. Yeah. What's going to happen to it? Nothing. It'd just be honey, wouldn't it? I'm also now, so your, your minds are so dirty, they've started to corrupt me. I'm wondering whether the honey was part of a preparation for sex in the afterlife. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think honey would last. Do you? Yeah. Okay. If we have a 2,000-year-old jar of honey and a modern-day jar of honey, you can have the 2,000-year-old one. <laughs> <laughs> I'll sell it for more modern honey. That's what I'll do. <laughs> 
Are we allowed to get back to porn or not? Or do you yeah, 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 go for it. Yeah. It's such a ridiculous thing, and porn is the anyone involved in making it knows it's the most unerotic thing that you're doing it with a film. And famously, in Don't Look Now, when uh, Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie were supposed to have done it for real while they were filming the love scene, Donald Sutherland says, "If you've had a film crew around you, you'll know how unerotic it is and how difficult it would be to do it." But the notion of the fluffer, I found out recently, apparently it's a myth that the fluffer exists Mm. at all. Mm. The fluffer, those of you that don't know, the fluffer is, and I guess it's normally a woman who's paid to ready the man for his performance, to get him into a physical state where he is ready to perform. And that's just a complete myth. If, if you're a male porn performer, you're expected to be ready. And if you're not ready, then wow. you won't get the job. And also, I love the fact that the people who clean the London Underground lines overnight, when the tube's shut overnight, they're called fluffers as well. <laughs> <laughs> so I think there is only one true job called the fluffer, and it's the one that cleaned the tube. Oh, imagine your disappointment when you find out <laughs> when you applied for fluffer. <laughs> you're down in the London Underground. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, w- I found another Egyptian uh, book that uh, is, has been sort of a mysterious book that we haven't quite cracked okay, and decoded. Sure. Um, and they've recently, they think they've managed to decode it properly. And this is Macquarie University in Australia, think they've managed to do it. And it's 1,300 years old, this text. Um, and they think what it turns out to be is that it's a book of spells. Some of the spells that they've translated uh, include a spell for someone who is possessed, someone who is annoyed at you, <laughs> There's a spell for that, uh, that a woman might conceive, and when someone has a magic on them, <laughs> you've got a magic on you. <laughs> I like that, that this is someone who is annoyed at you. Yeah. I think that's a fantastic yeah. spell. And you can just do a magic on them, and then they'll not be annoyed with you <laughs> yeah, anymore. Yeah, exactly. That's great. There's, yeah. a, there's another one called the Greek Magical Papyrus, uh, and that gives you uh, it gives you explanations for ingredients in um, other magics, as you might call them. So if a magic spell asks for a head of a snake, it's actually a leech. And if it asks for crocodile dung, it's Egyptian earth. And if it asks for lion semen, you should use human semen. Ah. Um, but for the magical spells um, so people often thought that these magic spells that they were doing had like the head of a snake in or lion semen in but actually they were much more normal um, well, objects that they thinking back in those days who would want the job of collecting the lion semen <laughs> yeah. now, I mean now they do it straight from the testicle I think don't they They'd knock it out and collect no, it no I think right. the lions have a fluffer don't they <laughs> <laughs> isn't there a thought that the idea of them changing the words or changing yeah. the terms is almost the copyright of its day it was to it was the um, the secret ingredient to Coca Cola type thing. Is it? Yeah, uh, that's what I read with Babylonian semen. It's the secret <laughs> ingredient of Coca Cola. <laughs> For legal reasons, I think we have to say that. Lion- <laughs> <laughs> I think they found that from Babylonian um, yeah, cuneiform right. that they thought that they were like, look at all these odd ingredients, and they realised that it, they were coded words, kind of like the the Jan Morris code from Everest, to, so that no one could steal the proper incantation and the ingredients for it. That's great. This is just quite interesting. Next year, Playboy. Um, no more nude women in Doing Playboy. It. They're getting rid of... It, so it's all going to be sort of tasteful. Uh, tasteful in quotation marks, what they think is tasteful. But you always say that you read that for the articles, Dan, don't you? No, I collect old ones because yeah. they... Yeah, Hunter S. Thompson <laughs> used to write for them and Woody Allen and Groucho Marx and, yeah, extraordinary comic uh, articles in there. And, uh, and now I can read it again for the articles. Very exciting. <laughs> 
Okay, that's it. That's all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things we've said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on Twitter. I'm on at Schreiberland. James? At Eggshaped. Andy? At Andrew Hunter M. Mark? I'm at Walk the Lines LDN. There's details of the book there. If anyone wants the book, it's M-A-I-L, Male Obsession. Yep, Male Obsession. And it's it's the idea is that you go around the country to all the postcodes um, and you find out it's basically a book full of amazing facts along with a journey around the UK. It's a book full of British trivia, British history, British weirdness that's been going on, and it's using postcode areas as the device. Yeah, 124 postcode areas, at least one fact from each postcode area. Yep, awesome. That's out in the shops. Go get it now. And if you want to listen to any of our previous shows, you can go to no such thing as a fish.com. If you want to come and see any of our live shows, we've also got a page there with all of the events. There's a lot that we're doing. We'll be back again next week. See you then. Goodbye.